This week is one of my favorite subjects, the woman with the issue of blood. I came across some really cool context a few years back while studying um, the Kahati commentary on the Mishnah, and it, it really opened this up wide. So today I will be sharing that. In addition, I will also be sharing about folk superstitions in first century Judaism and, and how that ties into all this. <laughs> it is pretty cool. Now, I haven't written it yet, but I hope that you will get a chance to read my future article on the context of pharmacia based on Greco-Roman era, era, era historians and legal documents. Um, when I finally get it all researched and written, I will have the article linked in the transcript at theancientbridge.com. I'm planning on naming it Pharmacia in the original Greco-Roman context. It's, um, it's important to understand the difference between Pharmacia and our modern world word pharmacy because they are definitely not the same. And in fact, they're merely related concepts having the same linguistic root. Pharmacia is one of those words whose meaning has to be taken within the context of what's being said around it. It has no one-size-fits-all meaning. Excuse me. Um, in fact, one meaning is decidedly secular, and the other meaning, and this is during Greco-Roman times, um, is decidedly nefarious and, and, and very pagan. Even the Greeks recognized this fact. Um, when we want to have this word be black and white, we're, we're butchering history and the language. And we certainly wouldn't want our own words to be held to that standard. You know, comparing the two, pharmacy and pharmacia, and claiming equivalency because they sound close, is rather like comparing biblos, which simply means book, and the Bible, which derives from it. Claiming that all Bibles are pagan because there in Acts 19.19, uh, Biblos describes the million dollars modern day uh, amount worth of magical texts that were burnt in Ephesus. But it's also used to describe the book of life and the genealogy of Yeshua, you may call Jesus, and to refer to the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. Context defines... Um, you know, definition, all right? And not our agendas or assumptions. Just because two words um, are the same doesn't mean they are the same. Like um, in, uh, in the King James Version, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.52 isn't talking about Donald Trump. When Paul states, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorrigible, incorruptible, <laughs> jeez, oh my God. the dead shall be raised incorrigible. Boy, talk about butchering scripture there. Um, and we shall be changed. And and I mean, and uh, you know, don't laugh. We're all laughing now because I said the dead shall be raised incorrigible. <laughs> But don't laugh because there's a blog out there claiming this. So I did not make this up. There are numerous blogs claiming this. Um, anyway, uh, you know, the Greek words for this are um, 
salpinx and salpizo for the sound of the trumpet and the trumpet itself, respectively. You know, and, and gay today doesn't mean what gay meant in the 19th century, nor does queer. When we eat cereal, we are not worshipping Ceres, the goddess of grain, etc., etc. Context, context, context. Just so we need to look at pharmacia, excuse me, and, and see that when used negatively in the ancient world, it referred to sorcery. No, the Greeks didn't like sorcery any more than the Romans. You know, and it also, um, it also meant poisons. Uh, and reading Plato for this, uh, not for this, but for, for that, that teaching, um, man, they had a lot to say about, um, people's, um, pharmacia laws that were about not, um, attempting to poison people. Big deal. Big deal back then. Livia, the wife of Augustus Caesar, was supposed to be, or is it Julius? Livia? Livia was Augustus. She was a big poisoner. She poisoned, she even poisoned like her own kids, if I, and grandchildren, if I remember correctly. Um, now the ancient world didn't like people who did these types of things really any more than us. It represented chaotic, uncontrollable, dangerous attempts to subvert the mind and will. Um, like love potions. Love potions were pharmacia. And, and to kill, uh, you know, not to heal or treat. Such people who did these things could not be controlled. And they were killed if caught, actually doing harm to someone important. Yeah, that's an important disclaimer. They got killed if they did this to someone important. Um, and when Paul uses this word pharmakia in his letter to the Galatians, he's addressing former pagans who came out of these sorts of background of manipulating um, natural and divine forces to do harm to others, you know. Anyway, excuse me, today I've got, um, <laughs> we've, we've had fires, and so I'm in Idaho. We have fires, like, far away, but my sinuses are just draining today like crazy, so you're going to have to put up with this. My apologies. So... In other words, we have to stop acting like meanings don't change um, or that they weren't even different in, in the time they were used and like the Bible was actually written in English or just waiting to be translated into English to finally be understood correctly. I know people who... Not, I mean, not close people. Just I've known people who, who believe that. Now, let's have a gay old time, as the Flintstones would say, in that same context. <laughs> Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog at the Ancient Bridge, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it. It's called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. All scripture this week 
comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of the series at theancientbridge.com, but don't tell my husband I just bought another book yesterday. <laughs> Darn you, Ryan White. Now, Ryan White is a very beloved friend of mine, and he is a wonderful teacher, better teacher than me. And uh, he pointed out this Mark book uh, yesterday. It's like, oh, fine, need it. So now the pile is bigger. It's two piles now because I was looking at it and I had it stacked so high on my coffee table that it was going to fall if there was any sort of accident. Anyway, let's get to the scripture. Uh, and we're in um, chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, verse 21, starting. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who'd had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard, she'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is our second encounter with making the unclean clean. Of course, the first in chapter one, you know, was in chapter one with um, the leper who, uh, the leper who blabbed. <laughs> and this is the third week in a row we've encountered the the theme of life from death starting with Yeshua rebuking the wind and waves which would have drowned them all and moving immediately to um the uh Gerasene demoniac who uh, lived among the tombs we will have four of these encounters in in these series back to back including the resurrection of Jairus's daughter next week. Yeshua is more and more showing who he is, but will any of them notice? In addition, this and um next week make up another Mark and Sandwich where we have one story nestled into the middle of another related story. We've seen this a number of times now. First, uh in the synagogue with the scribes from Jerusalem and his own family, uh, both rejecting him and accusing him. Family said he was crazy. The scribes from Jerusalem accused him of being in league with the prince of demons. Uh, second, in the uh, telling of the parable of the sower. 
and this is the third. There will be a total of at least seven. The overarching theme here in, in, in this week's and uh, next week's teaching is, uh, is life from death. Um, but this week it's social death and um, literal death, as well as the theme of Yeshua meeting the needs of both the clean and the unclean, the rich and the poor, the elite and the marginalized, male and female, young and old. And yet, this is also the story of two women whom Yeshua restores to life. Verse 21, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Now last week, he was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Gerasenes, uh, non-Jews who were raising pigs. Or at least they used to before Yeshua ministered deliverance to the demoniac plagued with legion. Now at least the fish are eating well, right? So he, they're having a party down there. So he's returned to Jewish territory. Capernaum maybe? Genesaret? You know, probably not Tiberius, as Herod Antipas had built that on top of a graveyard and the Jews really wouldn't go there. The respectable Jews wouldn't go there. So the text only says the other side. Luke merely points it out that it is somewhere he'd previously been, though. Um, although Matthew makes it sound like it might be in Capernaum, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> although, you know, I doubt it because this woman has been ill for a long time and evidently didn't even try to see him before now despite many opportunities if it was somewhere you know that he'd, he'd been before now also this uh this place is big enough to have multiple synagogue leaders i don't know we just don't know evidently not important or at least one of the gospel writers would have mentioned it but it is important to have an idea of geography when you're reading to know the lay of the land uh, I recommend Rainey and Notley's The Sacred Bridge, which was very generously gifted to me a few years back. It's mega pricey, but so worth it. Uh, best scholarly atlas on the market today, bar none. Now, he has, Yeshua has, gathered about him on the seashore, Oklos Polis, a great crowd. And they are gathered, which comes from the root word, synago which is used throughout the Gospels for the gathering together of everything from people to fish to grain, etc. Um, see, verses uh, 22 through 24, uh, then came one of, the one of the rulers of the synagogue, remember I said there was more than one, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. We'll cover this next week. And I included this week only to show the direction of travel that they were headed someplace specific when the subject of today's um, verses occur. Now, Yeshua and his disciples are on their way to the house of Jairus, one of the local leaders of the synagogue. We see no hesitation or questions from Yeshua. He just changed course and he goes. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
Now, we know the great crowd is Oklos Polis, uh, but that word thronged comes from Sintlibo, which literally means they squashed him in. They are pressing in on all sides. This isn't violent, but they are definitely not respecting his personal space or observing social distancing. And that's, you're supposed to laugh at that this year. This reads like the press at a high-profile murder trial or, or something with a paparazzi, with everyone wanting a piece of him. <coughs> Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, this is serious. You can't even begin to imagine her life. Frankly, neither can I. I've known women with an issue of blood, and it generally means one thing. Uterine cancer. I guess there are other reasons, but in that culture, in any ancient culture, this bleeding cut her off from society. And from, you know, as we will see, her potentially her own husband and children. It wasn't meant to be that way. It wasn't. The Torah isn't written in such a way that this woman should have become an untouchable, but we all know what people do with laws when there's no compassion. All right, And especially laws concerning the treatment of women when men are completely in charge, as we explored last year when we covered the first century Hillel and Shammai rulings on divorce. We're going to delve into the specific issue, that of a sick wife, by exploring the writings of the Talmud, Ramban, Ravad, and the Rambam. Twelve years. Twelve years. If she was 24, then this was half her life. If she was 36, then this was a third of her life. Now, bleeding constantly, even lightly, made her ritually unclean. She could not have sexual relations with her husband, and therefore she could never be a mother. Being a wife and a mother absolutely defined women in those days. It was their source of, of honor. We think nothing of what Anna the prophetess gave up when we see her story in Luke. We see it, you know, as this charming story. What we do not see is that she had forsaken everything that made a woman a woman in the ancient world you know, in order to devote herself to God's service. It was really the ultimate sacrifice in many ways. You know, being perpetually, ritually unclean also meant that she could not participate in the Passover or any of the feasts because they involved the eating of sacrificed meat. A normal woman would miss maybe 24% of the feasts, okay? But... Mm -hmm. You know, she, this one, she couldn't worship with her people during the times of joy, not ever. Do you ever notice that she's not even named? I mean, not even any family associations, not even a Jairus's daughter sort of designation. She is portrayed as being alone, a woman without social connections, a woman who belongs to no one and no one belongs to her. In ancient terms, this is tragic beyond belief. She had been enduring a living death for 12 long years. So what did Ramban, um, that's short for Nachmanides, Moshe ben Naman Garondi, he died in, in 1270. 
What did he say about menstruating women in the 13th century? Um, he claimed... <laughs> He claimed that the breath of a menstruating woman was harmful, her gaze detrimental, and it was also claimed that learned men could not greet her or even walk in the same footsteps that she had left behind. Wow. This isn't in the Bible. This is just tradition stuff. This is um, what you'd call traditions of men. Uh, they bring shame. Anyway, um, verse 26, And who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. I'm going to tell you right now that your views of first century medicine, and especially if you believe some of the essential oil um, stories, they're, they're, they're probably dead wrong. Disclaimer, I am not against essential oils, but they are not all over the Bible when it is read in context. I once saw a meme that said that essential oils are mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible, and that's nonsense. I mean, the word itself is oil itself. You know, it's only mentioned 202 times. And some of those are chapter headings, and almost every single reference is to olive oil, and most of those are with respect to the temple, kingship, priesthood, and eating. There are numerous references to resins and plants from which people now make essential oils, but really that's a far cry from being proof of a massive essential oil usage in Bible days. In actuality, most of the things that essential oils are made from today would not have been wasted like that in ancient times. Also, the purity we have today is insane compared to then. Yes, herbs and such were used, but what we mostly find in the ancient world is superstition even among the Jews and early Christians, your normal average everyday person had zero access to legitimate health care. And this woman is a prime example. And she evidently had some money so she could, you know, actually get health care. Um, now, some of the reasons are just purely scientific. The technology wasn't there, nor was the understanding required to produce effective treatments. Another reason is that these people were almost entirely spiritual thinkers as opposed to scientific thinkers. There were some top-notch scientific minds in the ancient world, but they were few and far between. People were obsessed with history, yes, but not with technological advancements. Doing things the same way generation after generation was often seen as a way to keep the gods happy and to honor the ancestors. I talked a lot about this sort of thing in my in my book, Context for Adults. Another reason is because resources were scarce and turning large amounts of plants into oils was something that very few could afford to do or experiment with afterward. They weren't like us. They didn't think like us. Sometimes we really don't give them the credit they deserve for being entirely unique and their thoughts being almost entirely unlike our own. But because they were focused on spirit, spirituality, they um, often mixed secular medicine with superstitious and sometimes without right magic in the case of ancient Egypt. Coming close to the break here. Um, one of my all-time favorite books on ancient Egypt is called The Ancient Gods Speak by Donald B. Redford. And it has a section on the use of magic in medical treatment. 
I mean, it's funny. They knew how to set a bone and to remove cataracts, for crying out loud. But they didn't feel the treatment meant anything if spellcasting didn't go along with it. It's a goofy paradigm, eh? You know, the science was not enough for them. And uh, they saw science not as science, but as the ritual part of spellcasting. Brilliant minds, though. Brilliant. The treatments they, they came up with. Anyway, we're... Uh, <sighs> and that, 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 the ancient god speak, you can often find it used on, on Amazon, and it's, it's, every section in it is written by an actual expert in that field that they're writing about. Be right back. Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to this week's Character in Context, where we're in Mark chapter 5, and we're talking about the woman with the issue of blood. And next week we'll be talking about Jairus's, the raising of Jairus's daughter. And so this week we're talking about um, medicine in the ancient world and what it was and what it wasn't. We're kind of combating some of the modern myths about what they did and didn't have back then. And... Um, one of the big things about them was they didn't see, they they had no idea of secular medicine, okay? Yes, you set a bone, but you also did, you know, a ritual over, or that was the ritual, and you also did incantation over it too. And that was what it was like with the Greeks and the Romans, especially the Egyptians, who were brilliant. And like I said before, they could remove cataracts, and they could set bones with the best of them, but they didn't think it was effective unless you cast a spell, too. <laughs> so, um, but what about what about medical treatment in in the first century with the Jews? Well, that same mindset still held sway, you know, even over God's own people, and it existed well into the Middle Ages, in fact. Let's look at something from. Um, from the Babylonian Talmud, um, Shabbat 110a, from the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. Um, Let them procure three kapiza of Persian onions, boil them in wine, make her drink it, and say to her, seize your discharge. But if not, she should be made to sit at a crossroads Hold a cup of wine in her hand, and a man comes up from behind, frightens her, and exclaims, Seize your discharge! But if not, a handful of cumin, a handful of saffron, and a handful of farin Greek are brought and boiled in wine, and she is made to drink it, and they say, Seize your discharge! But if not, let sixty pieces of sealing clay of a wine vessel be brought and let them smear her and say seize your discharge and it offers five more remedies and the last suggests fetching a barley grain <coughs> from the dung of a white mare M white mule excuse me when she eats 
the barley grain from the dung of the white mule. And if she if she holds it in for one day, <laughs> I couldn't keep it down. Her discharge will cease for one day. If for two days, her discharge will cease for two days. If for three days, it will cease forever. All right. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because they did this to women. All right. I mean, you know, seriously. All right. There is no scientific backing for any of this nonsense. This is at best superstition and at worst, man, let's just not even talk about the worst. One wonders if any of these ever even worked accidentally. The but if nots piled up, you know, sure make it clear that these certainly never worked. How on earth is she supposed to hold in a barley grain for three days? That's messed up. And there's nothing in there about sterilizing it before she eats it either. Oh, is it any wonder that ancient Jewish writings are full of scorn directed against doctors? They weren't doctors by our definition today, many of them, okay? And it, it's really interesting here that when Luke repeats this story, that he neglects to mention that part about doctors taking all of her money and leaving her unchanged. Why? Because Luke was a physician. Hopefully he was a good one. Now, let's look at something in this last verse that I noticed back in 2017. Oh, verse 26 again. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Okay. This poor woman had has spent all her own money, not her father's or her husband's. And this brings me to something I found while reading the Kahati commentary on Mishnah Seder, Mish, Mishnah, Mishnah Seder Nashim. Okay. If she was taken captive, he is obligated to ransom her. And if he said, here is her get, her divorce document, and her ketubah, which was the money owed her by contract if divorced, let her ransom herself. He is not allowed. If she fell ill, he is responsible for her healing. If he said, here is her get and her ketubah, let her heal herself. He is allowed. This is from the, uh, this is from uh, Pinchas Kehati, translated by Edward Levine, Mishnah Seder Nashim, Volume 1, Ketubot, pages 63 through 64. Now, although this may sound confusing, I don't even know why I told you. <laughs> it's in the transcript. Although this may sound confusing, when taken in context with the rest of the tractate, which was dealing with the marriage contract, and especially the whole of chapter 4, it states that a man was not allowed to refuse to ransom his wife if she was taken captive. He couldn't simply take the opportunity to get rid of her by saying, wow, what a stroke of luck. I'll just divorce her and give her the 200 dinars if she was a virgin when he married her, otherwise 100 and she can ransom herself. It was literal court. It was a literal court order that no matter what was written in the ketubah, he was in fact required to ransom his wife. In fact, 
it has been eye-opening, you know, learning exactly what was in a ketubah originally. It made divorce prohibitively expensive. If the wife was sick, however, this was a different situation which was subject to much commentary. Healing was part of the maintenance a husband owed his wife in exchange for her acting the part of a wife. But a divorced wife was entitled to no such care for her husband. The question became, when can you divorce a sick wife? Okay, Rambam, um, Maimonides, uh, Maimonides, a.k.a. Moshe ben Maimon, and he died in um, 1204. And he's like the go-to guy in Judaism. His, um, his rulings um, are considered authoritative by most Jews in, in, in most cases. All right, now, he interpreted this ruling. He was a doctor, by the way. He, uh, he interpreted this ruling as saying that if a woman had been ill for a long time and it was going to be too costly to care for her, a man could, in fact, divorce her if he was willing to give her the get and the ketubah. However, in Hilkot Ishut, 1417, he plainly stated that this is unfitting and improper behavior. In other words, they, the authors of the Mishnah, may have ruled that this was kosher, but Rambam did not approve. As Rambam is the most respected commentator in history, his review is going to reflect the overwhelming majority view among Jews today. Now, Ravad, Abraham ben David, um, who died uh, in 1198, just uh, six years before Rambam, he claimed that the case law applied only to a woman who was not bedridden. A bedridden wife had to be cared for until she healed or died. Therefore, a woman who was sick but not bedridden could be given, aka forced into, a divorce and her inheritance money and forced to fend for herself. Now this interpretation brings us to my take on the uh, on the story of the woman with the issue of blood. The woman in the gospel accounts is obviously not bedridden. You know, as she as we as we'll see, she was able to approach Yeshua and reach out for, to take the hem of his garment. Or actually, it says just the garment in uh, in this account. She had also spent all that she had. It said in trying to be cured. I submit that this woman, sick for 12 years, had probably been cast off and paid off by her husband once it became clear that her disease would render her unable to provide him with children. A woman who was constantly bleeding, even a little bit, as per Torah law, could never be approached sexually. It was an abomination, according to Leviticus 18.19. Because he could no longer derive that benefit from her, he divorced her and gave her the, probably, 200 dinars owed to her by the ketubah. As Rambam rightly declared, unfitting and improper behavior indeed. Verse 27 and 28. She, the woman with the issue of blood, had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. As I just pointed out, she's not bedridden. She was definitely not gushing blood constantly or she would have long since died. 
she has a serious she has an issue serious enough to be noticeable and to exclude her from marriage motherhood and community life but not serious enough to kill her it's a total catch-22 it won't kill her but it won't allow her to live either and this woman whose faith in humanity has probably just been shattered a woman without hope in the superstitions of her day you know masquerading as medicine anymore she hears about Yeshua and she has so much hope that she is certain that if she pushes her way through the crowd that touching even his clothing will be enough to heal her she's been through hell but she hasn't lost her faith in God and she is willing to risk further social ostracism by getting caught being in physical contact with this crowd that is squashing in on Yeshua and I know there are some people who teach that she could have been put to death for this but I have never seen anything even remotely suggesting such a thing not in any commentary or book or in any Jewish legal writings in fact during this time the Jews couldn't even put anyone to death Rome had stripped them of the right there are some goofy teachings out there but I have yet to see any substantiation on this um, if anyone has a legitimate source and I mean an ancient document you know not not somebody wrote a blog and they made this claim because that's not proof anyone can do that it's where we get the last Trump you know theories <laughs> anyway um so if anyone does have a legitimate source please correct me and a video of someone making the claim doesn't count because you know as we all know anyone can claim anything but it doesn't make it legit I could claim to look like Gal Gadot but if you've all seen me you know <laughs> you know it's not true now, it should not surprise anyone that her beliefs were definitely borderline magical in nature. That's how things were in those days, in the way many people viewed the divine. Okay, perform a ritual and get cured. That's what these doctors were doing in the passages that I shared from the Talmud. And, and this was most certainly her mindset as well. Um, you know, we can't help the culture we're born into, right? Okay, verse 29, and immediately the flow, but she touches him. So she immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. I bet she could. Can you even begin to imagine? And as in the case of the leper, the act that brought her the ability to finally become ritually clean brought uncleanness to Yeshua. Now remember, and I've taught this many times, there is no sin in being unclean. Marital sex makes one unclean, menstruation, etc. God said be fruitful and multiply, so he wasn't telling them to be sin, to be living in sin all the time, okay? The woman who approached Yeshua committed no sin in doing so. This is kind of more of a taboo. You know, it, it was no sin to either be unclean or to render someone else unclean via an issue of blood, excepting in the case of sexual contact, which is forbidden. You know, as long as it was not done within a sacred area, in fact, anyone who wished to go to the temp inner temple courts would have had to mikvah and wait until after sundown anyway, and this changed nothing. It was also not forbidden to go into the synagogue in an unclean state. If I am correct, um, 
And this was an ailing woman who had been handed a divorce by her husband along with her inheritance money and booted from her home. Her father and brothers owed her nothing when she was married, so she was probably on her own and had spent all of her money in a desperate attempt to be cured, and they, they could have even been dead. Her father almost certainly was. At this point, her life was pretty much hopeless. She couldn't marry or earn a living. She had no access to modern medicine or and no money left to do it anyway. This prophet from Galilee was her only hope in the world. And she believed with all her heart that merely touching his garment would heal her. So she reached out and touched his garment. You know, in and, and the hem of the firstborn son, which, you know, uh, traditionally carried the authority in the family. You know, and, and it... And it worked, okay? But her misconceptions had to be dealt with in order to bring her a complete healing from the ravages of first century superstition. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? This is actually the third mention of Himation garment in this passage more focus in fact that has been placed you know has been placed on his garments than just about anything else because for the woman they were the focus of her efforts verse 31 and his disciples said to him you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say who touched me this is irritated language here okay they are frustrated with the crowds and they're being snitty Maybe they're being a little bit realistic. Too. It's like, really? Come on. Um, I always say, like, we'd do anything else. Anyway, verse 32 and 33. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This is one brave lady, for sure. You know, she could have slipped away. You know, with such a large crowd around her, but she just admitted to everyone that she had made them rich, all ritually unclean, which was not a big deal so far away from the temple and and with the you know the, the public mikvaot, they would just be busy for a while. Really, what was what has happened here is the opposite of what will happen in the situation with the synagogue leader Jairus. She is being compelled to give her testimony before the crowd, which she does. It also happened uh, last week with the, the Gerasene demoniac. He was, he was compelled to give his testimony, too. You know, they all heard what she suffered from, what she believed, what she did, and what happened to her. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Lots to unpack in this verse. I will save the best for last. First of all, he relieves her of her superstitious misconception. Your faith has made you well. Not touching the clothing or the tzitzit or whatever it was, and it doesn't really make that much difference here. It was not the ritual act it was her faith in God's ability and willingness to heal her. 
This removes the healing from the realm of superstition and borderline magic into simply being an act of God in response to her belief. Now Yeshua reassures her that she is, in fact, permanently healed. He also tells her, I'll go and start crying. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm so emotional. Um, he also tells her to go in peace which is an assurance that no one will be harassing her by making, you know, for making them ritually unclean. Heck, they would all have to ritually wash at some point anyway. Might as well be for a better cause than just having sex or something. The entire community, including Yeshua, take on her uncleanness temporarily so that she can become clean. It's a beautiful picture of absolute restoration and the community that we are to be towards one another where we take on one another's burdens, all right? Isn't that awesome? But, you know, that's not the best part. I told you that it was her money that she had used for doctors, not her husband's money, not her father's money, not her brother's money, not her son's money. It was her money. She is a woman alone and completely bereft and abandoned. And I want you to hear what Yeshua says here. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is a father's blessing to his child. She's not alone. She's not disowned. Yeshua has laid claim to her as family. Remember the teachings on insiders and outsiders and fictive kinship? Yeshua is giving her insider status based on faith alone. Radical faith that was willing to take a huge risk. I think this is one of the most beautiful things Yeshua ever says. Her husband may have abandoned her, but the bridegroom has claimed her. She may have no father, but she is still an honored daughter of Abraham. Oh, I love this story. So, and, and next week we're going to deal with the outside of this Mark and Sandwich in dealing with the resurrection of Jairus's daughter. Oh, another daughter. And there are some serious compare and contrast moments that you won't want to miss that I didn't cover this week because we really have to, we have to get, you know, we've got the, um, we've got the daughter is going to repeat. We've got the 12 years is going to repeat. We've got the uncleanness. We've got the restoration from death to life. This week, social death to um, community life. And next week, literal death to literal life. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's a beautiful passage. A lot of passages in the Bible don't really have much to do with um, with women, but these these ones do. These, these ones really um, portray women as human beings with their own problems, and it portrays Yeshua as being incredibly concerned with women and their, their issues. Luke is probably the um, the gospel that most deals with women, and uh, or is it or is it Mark? Maybe it's Mark. No, I, I 
I think it's, I think it's Luke. Gosh, I'm just, can't remember this morning. Oh, but, um, it's awesome. But this, this picture of the entire community becoming unclean, and I'm exaggerating, the entire community didn't become unclean. The entire community sharing in her uncleanness so that she can become unclean. And, oh man, it just, it reminds me of the best of the work that people do in, in outreach as, as Christians. And, uh, you know, we, we get in, in the trenches, you know, I've got, I've got friend who works on Skid Row. He was on Skid Row once and now he's very well off. And, uh, but he goes back to Skid Row. He could say, well, I'm clean now. I'm not getting, you know, he goes back, he goes back. And, you know, I know people who were formerly, um, porn star <laughs> and, um, in prostitutes okay and they go back and, and they minister and and they take on what a lot of people would consider to be uncleanness for the sake of restoring somebody to the image bearer of god that they're meant to be so they can be a part of a community who will love them and sacrifice them for them and 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 what's the cost oh a bit of discomfort you know, these guys, all they had to do was uh, take a ritual bath. Oh, no, you know, bathing. Well, these guys aren't toddlers or male teenagers, so, you know, bathing shouldn't be that big of a deal. But it's just all a, all a matter of our, our outlook. Anyway, so that's one of my favorite teachings. I will see you next week. Uh, have a wonderful week.